Genesis 18:19. There was a statement in that passage. It is succinct, it is to the point. And the statement says, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Some translations would say, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? We, we get frustrated at times because God does not do what is right immediately when we would like to see it done. And so we get frustrated. But God is a God of justice, and justice will occur, and justice will take place. Uh, Marvin Olasky, uh, on his website, says, A friend emailed me this joke yesterday, which I've seen in past years, set in different cities, St. Louis, San Diego. But uh, here's the latest version. Two boys in Boston were playing basketball, when one of them was attacked by a rabid Rottweiler. Thinking quickly, the other boy ripped, off, ripped a board off a nearby fence, wedged it into the dog's collar, and twisted it and broke the dog's neck. A newspaper reporter from the Boston Globe witnessed the incident and rushed over to interview the heroic boy. The reporter began entering data into his laptop, beginning with the headline, Brave Young Celtics Fan saves friend from jaws of vicious animal. That was the headline. He shared it with the little boy, and the little boy said, but I'm not a Celtics fan. Sorry, said the reporter. Uh, Since we're in Boston, I just assumed you were. Hitting the delete key, the reporter wrote a new headline. John Kerry fan rescues friend from horrific dog attack. The little boy said, but I'm not a Kerry fan either. The reporter said, I assumed everybody in the state was either for the Celtics or Kerry or Kennedy, what, what person or, or team do you like? The boy said, I'm a Houston Rockets fan, and I really like George W. Bush. Hitting into the leak key, the reporter began again. Arrogant little conservative kills <laughs> beloved family pet. <laughs> now, some would feel that that was unjust. Others would think it's right on target. It all depends on your perspective uh, of justice. As we get into this on the justice of God and the character of God, I want to set the stage sort of like I did last week by referring to some things that um, we're we're dealing with right now in our nation and in our culture that all applies to justice or the lack of. Uh, Hugh Hewitt, uh, who who is a a brilliant Christian commentator, uh, who has a radio program that has just now come to Dallas. In fact, when you leave here, you can tune uh, Hugh Hewitt in on 6.60 a.m. They just brought him into town. He's, He's good. He's sharp. He's real biblical. Hugh Hewitt says this. Um, This is from yesterday. Senator Ted Kennedy on the floor of the United States Senate today, and he quotes, protection of the Iraqi people from the cruelty of Saddam had become one of the administration's last remaining rationalizations for going to war. 
So it is human rights that the administration turned to in order to justify its decision to go to war. On December 24, 2003, the day Saddam was captured, President Bush said that for the vast of Iraqi citizens who wish to live as free men and women, this event brings further assurance that the torture chambers and secret police are gone forever. On March 19th, I'm quoting Kennedy here, 2004, President Bush asked who would prefer that Saddam's torture chambers still be open. Shamefully, we now learn that Saddam's torture chambers reopened under new management, United States management. Kennedy said that the uh, day before yesterday on the floor of the Senate. Now, what's interesting about that, uh, you, may, you, may, you may have trouble with that. Well, then you'll really have trouble with this. Uh, Hewitt writes, Ted Kennedy used the Senate floor to slander America and its military. When he said, shamefully, we now learn that Saddam's torture chambers reopened under new management, U.S. management. And, and he would ask, how does the elite media react? Stories on the prisoner abuse scandal in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal make no mention of Kennedy's repulsive excess. They never even mentioned what he said. The Washington Post alone used the last paragraph in its story to note that Kennedy took to the floor to blast the military and the administration, but does not use this quote, preferring to quote Kennedy's statement that President Bush had presided over America's steepest and deepest fall from grace in the history of our country. A colossal failure of leadership. Um, uh, that doesn't sound to me like a fair press. That doesn't sound to me like an unbiased press. But we all know by now that there is no... The press is biased. And... Uh, and and so why did I begin by saying, it's hard for me to watch the news? And, it's hard, and you guys all go, yeah, it's hard for me to watch. It's hard for me to read the paper. Why? Because there's not a sense of justice. And when justice isn't being served, whatever the issue is, we get frustrated. Now, here's another piece from Gary Bauer. Gary says, in February of this year, the parents of one of the accused soldiers of the whole deal going on over there, which in itself was really despicable, uh, that our soldiers would do that. Um, some of you guys are going to think I'm going to be real political tonight. Because I am. But I want to show you how this all relates to morality and what you believe in your personal morality, what you believe about the Word of God, all comes out in your life in one, shape, one way, shape, or form. So... This stuff happens, and it, it, uh, I, I've, been, I've been reading on this, and it turns out that what happened with those prisoners, what our soldiers did, some of them, is uh, very uh, commonplace in college fraternities these days, different athletic teams. Hazing has gotten to that level and has gotten to that point. Now, I find it interesting that a guy like Kennedy would get up and be outraged over that. When indeed, Kennedy himself is a man who consistently has fought for laws which would lower the moral standards of this nation. By his legislation, how many children are murdered every year in this country? And by his own personal example of his life and the life of his father and the life of his family and how they would pass women around, and that is a known fact written by biographers friendly to the family. Uh, they have lowered the moral standards of this nation. 
So I find it really interesting that he would be outraged at that behavior when he himself, quite frankly, has been involved in much worse. I'm very proud of myself for being so calm and... Yeah. So, so catch this. Bauer writes, in February this year, the parents of one of the accused soldiers wrote to 17 senators, including Hillary Clinton and Ted Kennedy, informing, informing them of the events at the prison. There is no record that any of those senators, among them the loudest critics of President Bush and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, took any action, although they were told. Where's the justice? Um, Olasky again. USA Today does quote the words of the terrorist as one sawed off Nick Bird's head, Allahu Akbar, and states that those words are Arabic for God is great. The New York Times leaves Allah out of its story and merely has this sentence as he screamed, one of the men put a knife to Mr. Bird's neck and the man yelled, God is great. The men yelled, God is great. Given that most American readers think of God in Christian or Jewish terms, should Allah be translated as God? And the answer is no. The Allah of the Quran, let alone the Allah envisioned by terrorists who take one aspect of the Quran to its extreme, is very different from the God of the Bible. See, to be just, to be fair, they should have made a distinction. But see, this goes on all the time. Um, I, I got a bunch of these. Uh, uh, Ray Reynolds, who's nearing the end of his tour in Baghdad with the Iowa Army National Guard, recently wrote these words. He's with the 234th Signal Battalion. According to uh, SFC Reynolds, here is what we've actually been up to in the year since the war in Iraq toppled Saddam. You ready for this? Over 400,000 Iraqi children now have up-to-date immunizations. Have you read that in the paper recently? His Brokaw covered that. No. School attendance is up 80% from levels prior to the war. Over 1,500 schools have been renovated and cleared of weapons previously stored there. The port of Umm Qasar has been refurbished so grain can be offloaded from ships faster. The country has begun, has begun exporting oil again, some 2 billion barrels a month. Over 4.5 million people now have clean drinking water for the first time ever. Ever. The country now produces two times the electrical power it did before the war. 100% of the hospitals are open and fully staffed compared to only 35% before the war. You guys are up on this, right? You've heard this? You've been reading this? You haven't heard any of it, have you? Does that kind of get in your craw? Does that kind of bother you? Do you think that's not right? That's not fair? That's not just? Sure you do. Because it's not just. Elections have taken place in every major city, and city councils are now in place. Sewer and water lines have been installed in every major city. Over 60,000 police are patrolling the streets. Over 100,000 Iraqi civil defense police are securing the country. Over 400,000 people have telephones for the first time ever. An interim constitution has been signed by every major faction of Iraqi society and culture. Girls are allowed to attend school throughout the country. Uh, textbook that don't, textbooks that don't lionize Saddam are in the schools for the first time in 30 years. 
Ideas of freedom, opportunity, and hope are the new currency of the land, despite the best efforts of Al-Qaeda to instill tyranny, oppression, and fear. But we don't hear about that, do we? Now, we could go on and on and on, guys. I mean, not just, this is front page stuff. There's all See, wherever we look, we see, we see a lack of justice. Um, and that bothers us. When, when, when something should be done and it's not done, there, there is a sense of frustration. Because you see, the fact of the matter is, no matter what our culture says, and what does our culture say? Because we have a postmodern culture. Our culture says there is no right or wrong. That's, you send your kid off to a university, and that's what they're going to be taught. Um, Terry Eastland had an article in the Dallas Morning News this week. And basically, his article said that sending a kid to college basically was the equivalent of, of buying an expensive new car. Now, it's the equivalent of buying a new house for what it costs to send a kid to college. So when you send a kid to college, you want to be real clear in your mind where you're sending that kid because why would you pay that much money to allow people who you would never allow into your home to inculcate propaganda into the mind? You hear what I'm saying. Um, and when we hear about things that are taught in university campuses, we, we get upset and it's just absolutely beyond belief, and it's ridiculous. Um, that's why they've devised a welfare system for college professors called tenure. And tenure allows those fools who don't believe in God to become even greater fools, and the state will underwrite them. Um, that's ridiculous. That's not right. It's not just. <sighs> One day... God is going to do what's right. Um, it's going to be interesting, I think, to see if indeed it's even possible to establish a democracy in a Muslim country. Because you see, the foundation is really critical. And when you look at the Middle East, there is not a functioning democracy anywhere except in Israel and what Israel has as the basis for their law is our Old Testament. Uh, every structure has a foundation. Now, you guys got to help me. Did I say this last week here? Okay, good. I said it last week, but it was somewhere else. Every, every home has a foundation. Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house... They who labor, labor in vain. I'll never forget speaking at a college conference for a bunch of Southern Baptists. And this guy comes up to me, he was a senior in college, Southern Baptist kid, and he said, I'm engaged, um, going to be married in June. This gal I'm marrying is a Roman Catholic. Do you have any advice for me? I said, don't marry her. And he was kind of stunned. I said, I, surely I'm not the first guy to tell you that. I said, do you know Christ? Or are you just a Southern Baptist? Because <laughs> not every Southern Baptist knows Christ. I, I was dead serious. Do you know Christ? 
Do you love him? Are you following him? Are you serving him? Do you believe his word? Has anybody else, have you not had this conversation with anybody else? Because see, what you're doing on the most fundamental issue, you're building a foundation and, and you've got, what you are doing is you are asking for trouble and difficulty all the days of your life. So let me ask you something. Do you pray to the Virgin Mary? No, I don't. But your future wife does. Do you light candles to the saints? Do you pray to saints? Uh, you don't light candles, do you? No, but she does. Now let me ask you this. So when your kids are seven and eight years old and your kids ask you, uh, about praying to Mary, what are you going to say? You're going to say one thing, and your wife's going to say another, or you're going to cave in. See, you've got to get the right foundation in place, man. You, you are asking for a boatload of trouble. Uh, you, you are setting a foundation, and uh, you are setting yourself up for a life of misery, because the foundation is everything. That's true in a marriage. That's true in a nation. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Um, Nations have foundations. Why is it, have you noticed this? Why is it when our baseball team plays Cubas, our guys don't defect? <laughs> Yet they've always got one or two guys that defect. How come our guys don't defect? Because Cuba has a different foundation than we have. Why, why is there freedom and opportunity? Now, America has never been perfect. But you have to say this. Out of all the options in the world, this was the one people wanted to come to. Because in spite of the fact that we had slavery, and now I, and let's say this. It was Bible-believing Christians who fought against slavery and who preached against it. Um, that's a blight. So, so we're not saying that we were perfect. There are no perfect nations. But why is it that peace, people were leaving Eastern Europe in droves? They were leaving the Netherlands. They were leaving England. They were leaving France. They were leaving, people are leaving from all over the world trying to get here. Why? Because there was opportunity. There was democracy. There was liberty. There was justice. There were certain principles in place. There was justice. Now, you've got to ask yourself the question, where does that come from? It comes from somewhere. You, you've heard people in debates saying, oh, you're just about a new law. You're just trying to legislate morality. Every law is legislating morality. It's just a matter of whose morality is going to get legislated. Why is it that democracy is only alive in the Middle East and Israel? Because Israel has a biblical basis based on the one true God, Yahweh, as the foundation of their nation and of their legal system. Why is it that people were doing everything they could do to get to America? Why? Because there was opportunity and justice and freedom. Where did, where did that come from? Because we had certain laws they didn't have in other places. Where do we get those laws? We got them from the Koran. <laughs> That's not where we got them. That's not where we got them. So our troops in Saudi Arabia, you know what? They don't have the religious freedom that we have in America. Why not? Because they're in a Muslim country. And in a Muslim country, you don't have religious freedom. But you have religious freedom in a Christian country. You see? See, it all comes, guys, it all comes down 
to the foundation. Now, when we talk about the justice of God, what is justice? Let me give you a definition, a real simple, simple definition of justice. Justice is moral rightness and equity. Let me say that again. Justice is moral rightness and equity. What does Genesis 18, 19 say? Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Yes. Now, when we started this study, the first thing we said, I'm sorry? Do I have it written down wrong? Well, thank you for the clarification. 1825. Sorry about that. Um, it's 1819 in the Quran. That must be it. The, uh, um, I just lost my thought. Where was I? 19 is also there. So it's 19 and 25. Okay. All right. Uh, the definition of justice, moral equity, moral rightness and equity. The first thing we talked about in regard to the attributes of God was that God's primary attribute is not his love. God's primary attribute is his holiness. And every other attribute is attached to the holiness of God. So, when we talk about moral rightness and equity, we're talking about that justice that comes from the character and nature of a holy God who is absolutely morally pure. He can't be anything else but just. His laws are just. His truth is just. Uh, that's where moral rightness and moral equity comes from. We see God's justice when we look at the laws that he gave to Israel. Now follow me here. Israel in the Old Testament was a theocracy. God ruled. God reigned. God was in charge. Um, it must be understood that the laws and punishment that God gave to Israel um, should not necessarily be reimposed today. We're not a theocracy. However, we're called to take the gospel to every creature. We are called to obey the laws of the countries that we live in, except when those laws clearly contradict the teachings of Scripture. Now, the laws that God gave to Israel clearly establish his attribute of justice and righteousness. When you look at the Old Testament law, there is... There are some unique aspects. When, and you know, so much of the Old Testament is law. And we read that and it's kind of boring, and it's kind of dull. But it wasn't to those folks. Because you see, Israel was a theocracy in the midst, in the midst of nations that were characterized by a lack of justice and by kings that were out of control. I put some notes together and and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't usually like to read notes, but I've got to do this because this stuff is so exact, all right? Now, some of this is a compilation of stuff I pulled out of William White's article on the in the Biblical Almanac. Uh, some of it is, uh, would be tied in with uh, uh, J.I. Packer's stuff, um, and a couple other guys will come to mind in a minute. 
Let's talk about the uniqueness of biblical law, okay? And, and the, reason, the reason this is important is that our law comes from biblical law. I got this new biography on Alexander Hamilton that I'm reading. And it, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very fascinating because Hamilton, if you pull out a $10 bill, Hamilton's on that, on that bill. Uh, Hamilton was, I didn't realize how key of a figure he was in, in our country. He set up uh, the banking system. He set up the, uh, the, the basic taxation system, the debt system. He, he did a number of things and put them into place. He took abstract ideas and put them into concrete forms. Um, he, he, was, he was really a, a, an, an amazing guy. Uh, one of the things that was unique uh, about Hamilton is uh, he was raised in the West Indies. His father was a wealthy Scot who was the black sheep of the family, came to the West Indies, squandered everything, uh, didn't marry his mother. This kid grew up illegitimate, got an opportunity to come to New York, and he stood out. He was such a, he had such a great mind as this 18-year-old kid that some men offered him a scholarship to Princeton, which was a godly school then, and there was a guy named John Witherspoon who was a godly man. And, and a lot of godly men came out of Princeton. And uh, he wound up going to the King's College, but what was interesting, he started studying the law, and he was he spent a lot of time reading Blackstone's commentaries. Well, it used to be every law student in America read Blackstone's commentaries. And Blackstone would give you the law, then Blackstone would give you the verses that substantiated the law. The verses out of the Bible. Because law has to come from somewhere. Our laws come from the laws that are in the Old Testament. That's the basis of our law. Since the legal system of the Bible helped to shape that of the West today, uh, it doesn't seem strange to us, but we can discern the uniqueness of biblical law when we compare it to other ancient systems of law. Um, Mesopotamia was a very advanced civilization during the time of the Old Testament. Um, and Mesopotamia followed a general pattern. Instead of giving universal guidelines for law, they stated what had been traditionally decided in a series of actual court cases. Now, you know what's really interesting to me? That's where we are now. We are where Mesopotamia was. That's not how we started. Now, we don't look at what the law originally said. Now, we look at the most recent cases trying to find a precedent for this nonsense that we're trying to push through. There's a difference. Um, Mesopotamian laws told people how to handle their money and property, how to collect damages, how to get a divorce, and so on, but it did not teach moral or religious lessons. This is wild. In many nations that surrounded ancient Israel, the king carried the laws in his head as they were his personal possession. He did not publish them until he was ready to give up his throne. Thus, a person could be arrested for breaking a law he had never known. The laws were kept secret, even when a person was put on trial for breaking them. Now, I find this interesting, that the king carried the laws in his head as, they, as though they were his personal possession. We've got judges today that do that, don't we? We talked a few weeks ago about uh, what's going on in the United States in our law system. We have what we call, Francis Schaeffer called situational sociological law. It's whatever... And see, everybody knows this. 
if you've got a case or something you don't like, if there's been a, uh, a referendum, if there's been an election and it passes, well, they already got a judge lined up. One guy is going to say that's not constitutional. Now, does he care what the Constitution says? He doesn't give a flip about what the Constitution says because he's carrying it around in his own head. Uh, the laws were kept secret. You could be put on trial and you didn't even know you broke a law. But in Israel, the leaders of government read God's law to the people at regular times of the year. That's Deuteronomy 31. Thus, every citizen can learn the laws he had to obey. Now, let me give you some principles of Israel's laws. And, and again, guys, this would have been the basis for all laws. Here's number one. All, cr all crimes ultimately are crimes against God. Let me say that again. All crimes ultimately are crimes against God. God built Israelite society on his own rules. So when a person offended society, he thereby offended God. Uh, God enforced his law when his human agents would not. That's Exodus 22, verses 21 to 24. It's also Psalm 67, 4. God undertook to punish his people when they did not apply his law fairly. He would punish the leaders. Here's number two. Respect for human life. This is characteristics of the laws in the scripture. Since man was created in God's image, God's law protected human life. If someone injured a person of lower social status, he was not excused by the mere payment of a fine. The only equivalent of human life was human life itself. God said that every murderer should be executed. God said that because human life was valuable. Now, what's interesting is when uh, there are laws in the Scripture concerning a man being gored by an ox that you own. That's not a big deal to you. I mean, you're not worried tomorrow about going to work and getting gored by an ox in the parking lot. Well, it was a big deal to them because oxen were everywhere. All right, now notice, uh, let's look at one of the other law systems. Uh, there was an old Babylonian, uh, Babylonian system called the Code of Eshnuna. Now follow me here, all right? And you put yourself back in this situation. You've got your wife and kids and you're living back there, Okay. Statute number 54 says, if an ox is known to gore habitually and the authorities have brought the fact to the knowledge of its owner, but he does not have his ox dehorned, and if it gores a man and causes his death, then the owner of the ox shall pay two-thirds of a minna of silver. The next statute, number 55, says, if it gores a slave and causes his death, he shall pay 15 shekels of silver, a much lower number. The Code of Hammurabi says, if a man's ox was a gorer uh, and the city council made it known to him that it was a gorer, but he did not have its horns removed or tie up his ox, and the ox gored a member of the aristocracy, he shall give one half minute of silver. So you see how law differentiated between the status of people? If you're an aristocrat, the guy pays more. If you're a slave, he hardly pays anything. You don't find that in the Old Testament law. Uh, you know why you don't find that? Because God says every life is valuable. And every man is valuable. 
and every man is made in the image of God. Here's what the Old Testament said. Exodus 21, verse 29. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. That's what God says. Why does God say that? Because God created life and God respects life and every life is up. It doesn't say if an aristocrat. It doesn't say if a Massachusetts senator... It doesn't say if some guy who went to Yale. It says if a man. If you've been warned, if you've been told, and you know it's a gore, and it takes somebody, it, it, that, that ox kills a man, you're going to pay with your life because you knew. You see the difference between the two law systems? There's quite a difference, isn't there? There was a principle of Equitable penalties. Equitable penalties. Um, other laws of the Near East allowed a victim to inflict more injury than he had received. They also allowed some criminals to pay back less than what they had stolen or less than the injury they had caused. God ruled that the court should only require eye for eye or tooth for tooth. See, to us, when we hear that, that sounds harsh to us. But, but understand that in some systems of law, uh, it could be much, much greater than that. And it's a punishment that doesn't fit the crime. And see, when there's a punishment that doesn't fit the crime, we, we get incensed. So a recent case in Florida where this guy murdered this little, what, 12-year-old girl? And we caught it on video. And he, he walks up and grabs her arm. And then we find out that a judge had let this guy out. You see? We get incensed by that. Um, personal punishment. Here's another principle. Outside of Israel, rich people could buy their way out of punishment. But God declared that every lawbreaker must suffer for his own crimes. If a judge was too easy on the lawbreaker, he became guilty of the crime too. I like that. Don't you? When you have a, just a sense of justice if that were to take place. Uh, no one could be forced to substitute uh, for a criminal, although in other cultures, that indeed could happen. Um, let's talk about the principle of universal justice, because this isn't in every system. It's only from the scriptures. Uh, so once again, why did people try to make their way to the United States of America? Because there was a system of universal just justice flawed we're still working on it but this came from the scriptures guys laws come from somewhere they have to come from somewhere god's law protected the rights of the poor the widow the orphan and the alien god ruled that no israelite could be enslaved forever one of the tragic things about slavery that happened in the south is that slave owners who went to church and would read the bible would read the bible to slaves who they purposely kept illiterate but they didn't read the whole word of god to the slaves about what the bible said about slavery if they had of they would have been cutting their own throat because you could not perpetually enslave a man slavery was a system in the old testament that god instituted that enabled uh people to get out of debt it was it was a way if you got in over your head it was a way of 
uh, paying back a debt, you could only be a slave for X amount of years. Now, if you liked working for the guy and he was a good guy and you liked having a paycheck every two weeks and he had a 401k and he had a health plan, then you could choose of your own accord to become a bondservant. And, it's, and some did. But you chose it. It wasn't what we did in the South. Uh, and if you got in over your head financially, and out of, they had something every 50 years called the year of, anybody know? Jubilee. And all debts were settled. And everything was wiped clean, and everybody got a chance to start over again. You know what you call that? You call that justice. That's what you call that. You don't find that in any other system in the world other than the Scriptures. See, this slavery stuff that happened, uh, it was William Wilberforce that devoted his life in England to fighting slavery. And then some, some of the guys, some of the founding fathers who spoke against slavery, had slaves. Guys in the north. It made no sense. They were teaching one thing and living another. But the scriptures, the, the, the system of justice in the scripture doesn't permit you to enslave someone. You can't split up a, a, a family. You can't put children on the auction. You can't do that. That's unjust. Let's talk about the court system for a minute. You guys still with me? Okay. The law required witnesses to tell the truth or suffer the same penalty as the accused one. We used to do that. You remember when we used to do that? If you committed perjury, you'd be a felon. You remember that? Unless you're Bill Clinton. You know, a lot of times, guys, history is made in a nation, and another nation doesn't realize history has been made. When the Senate refused to vote for impeachment, see, he lied under oath. Everybody knows he lied under oath. And when the Senate refused to go ahead and apply the law, we crossed the line. We crossed the line forever that had never been crossed before. Okay, I'll say it. <laughs> there are studies that demonstrate that one of the pivotal years in the history of our nation was 1962. If you go back historically and look from 1960, uh, secular historians will tell you 68 was a pivotal year, and it was. A lot happened in 68. 62, though, was the linchpin. From 62, we've been downhill ever since. In 62, prayer was taken out of the schools. Uh, what's interesting about that is every year that the SAT was given, up until 62, the scores went up. But from 62, the scores on the SAT have been going down. In fact, they went down so far that what they had to do was they had to change the SAT and make it easier. Did you know that's what happened? See, once again, they had to lower the standards to give the appearance that the standards were the same. But they're not the same. So they took prayer out of the school. And you've probably seen it. They took prayer out of the schools. Then they take the scriptures out of the schools. And then you just start 
You start, see, what you start doing is you start lowering the standard. What do you mean lower the standard? They got away from God's standard. They got away from what God said. They got away from the truth of the scriptures, which was the foundation of this nation. And when that happened, we began the downward slide. So why would SAT scores begin to go down? What's that about? Obviously, something's happened in the classroom. Well, what started to happen in the 60s in classrooms? What were some things that we had that we no longer had? What began to break down in the classrooms? Discipline. Another word for discipline is justice. But see, discipline began to break down. Why did discipline begin to break down? Because the culture began to break down. And not only did discipline start to break down in the schools, discipline began to break down in the homes, you see. In, when I was in fourth grade, I, um, there was one kid in my fourth grade class whose parents were divorced. 1950, what was that? Seven, eight. I'm shooting baskets with this kid, Craig, who lived across the street. We're shooting hoops. I say, hey, Craig, I never see your dad. Where's your dad? And he goes, oh, my dad doesn't live with us. I said, really? Where's your dad? He goes, well, my mom and dad are divorced. And I said, what's that? Can you imagine a kid in the fourth grade not knowing what divorce is? But see, honestly, there was nobody in my family who, who was divorced. There was nobody that I knew of in my, he was, there was nobody in my class who was divorced. I didn't know anybody at church in my Sunday school class whose parents were divorced. See, because in the 50s, we had a culture of marriage. Now, how many years, what, what was that, 50, almost 50 years, 45 years later, we're not a culture of marriage, we're a culture of divorce. And if you can find a kid in a fourth grade class who's got his original parents, that's rare. We've totally flip-flopped what's happened. Well, one of the things that happened was that the law changed. It used to be, and let me subtly look at my watch. It used to be that if a guy got involved with some sweet young thing. So I'm on the phone last night with a gal. You remember I told you about the guy that put on the men's conference? And had everybody reading Finishing Strong and, you know, and he pumped up all the guys and said, you're going to be a target and all this. And uh, then it turns out that just before the, he's involved, with, he's shacking up with some chick. I talked to his wife last night. And he's moving across the country. And, um, and now, you know what? Uh, he couldn't have done that in 1950. See, he can do it now. See, back in the 50s, if you wanted a divorce, your spouse had to grant you a divorce. I remember Mary and I were watching this old movie one time, and the whole plot was this guy was a, you know, just a good American citizen. The guy had his own insurance company, and he was a churchgoer. Nice wife, nice kid, you know, living the American dream. Well, he hires his secretary, and he gets emotionally infatuated with it. The movie was probably made in like 55. Falls in love with her, tells his wife he wants a divorce. He wants to marry her. She won't give him a divorce. And the whole movie is about how frustrated and everything he does to manipulate his wife so that he can get a divorce and marry this young thing. And then at the end, towards the end of the movie, he wakes up one day. It's like he comes to his senses and realizes, what am I doing? He asks his wife, he asks his wife to forgive him. And 
they, they renew their vows and their family is put back together. I love those Hollywood movies, don't you? <laughs> they don't make Hollywood movies like that anymore because the culture's changed. But they used to make Hollywood movies like that. See, the guy came to his senses. But see, today, if he wanted to take off with this 23-year-old chick, he'd just take off with her. Why? Because somebody changed what? They changed the law. No fault. No fault. No fault divorce. Hey, let me tell you something. It's always somebody's fault. I want to write a book one day with a chapter in it called Your Fault Divorce. So this jerk that just left his wife and four daughters, it's his fault. I'm not saying anything was perfect. I don't know the situation. I'm sure that there are some things on both sides. There always are. But you know what? He left. So if you leave, it's your fault. We changed the law. How, how, many, how many women and how many kids have been emotionally maimed for life because some liberal, godless reprobate got the law changed? I'd appreciate your vote on Tuesday <laughs> when I run for the primary. All right. Catch this. The law required witnesses to tell the truth or suffer the same penalty as the accused one. That's interesting. Tell the truth, or you will suffer the same penalty as the accused. See, what that did, it raised the standard. Not lower. It raised it so the people would tell the truth. Two or three witnesses had to give consonant testimony in order to convict a person of a serious crime. A person could not be convicted on the basis of only one witness's testimony. You say, oh, that's great. Wasn't there any mercy in all this? There was. There were cities of refuge. If there was an accident and you killed a man by accident, you could run to a city of refuge and you were free and you were protected. Because within God's system of justice, God's also a God of mercy. Um, guys, nations just don't happen. Freedom, freedom doesn't just, uh, uh, it, it doesn't just happen. Um, now, now, some of you guys, you say, well, you know, I'm not so sure about this Old Testament law thing because there's some stuff in the Old Testament that kind of, uh, you know, is, is kind of strange, I think. Let me make a couple comments about that. Are you, are you guys still there? Because, see, here's the deal. Here, here's what happens. Um, we're in a situation right now where basically the law, um, the law has been set aside. The law doesn't matter anymore. When the Antichrist comes, he is called the man of lawlessness. Lawlessness. That's what we see happening uh, in our culture. Um, and see, our culture has a real hard time with capital punishment. Our culture has a real hard time with capital crimes. There were 30 crimes in the Old Testament that were deserving of death. Um, but before I, I mention those, let me just make a comment on the morality of capital punishment. Uh, John Wyndham, in his book, The Goodness of God, uh, which is really an insightful book, has this to say about our modern system. Because, see, our modern system, it always fascinates me that those who 
protest against capital punishment are always for abortion. I, I, almost across the board, that's the way that it works. Um, listen to what Wyndham says. Whether, in fact, the Old Testament laws were cruel in comparison with those of our supposedly humane society is not as self-evident as many think. Um, the Old Testament relayed, relied mainly on payment of damages, strictly limited corporal punishment and capital punishment, whereas modern society relays, relies mainly on fines and imprisonment. There was no imprisonment in the Old Testament. God didn't imprison people. You know why? Because it's, it's not humane to imprison people. There are other ways of dealing with injustice that are humane. He goes on and says, The nearest thing to imprisonment in Old Testament law was confinement to a city of refuge for unintentional homicide. Anyone who defends corporal or capital punishment, even in the most tentative ways, runs the risk of being branded as a sadistic ogre. Yet my horror, he writes, of long-term imprisonment is horror at the sheer suffering that it entails. Um, we've got everybody up in arms over what happened in Iraq and what happened in Iraq and that prison shouldn't have happened. But, but, but do you know there is an absolute unchecked epidemic of homosexual rape in the United States prison system that nobody is speaking about? that those on the liberal side of the equation are not speaking about. Those who are bringing it up are those from prison fellowship and evangelical Christians because it is, it is beyond belief what happens in prison systems and a system where prison guards look the other way. It, it, it is a living hell what is going on in the prisons of the United States of America. Uh, one would hate, therefore, really to hurt someone physically by way of punishment and would deplore any system of corporal punishment which was either sadistic in intent or excessive in degree, of which was used without due consideration of the offender's psychological needs. Now catch this. To substitute long imprisonment for execution may at first sight seem like mercy, but judged by the suffering to be endured, it is surely the reverse of mercy. So what's more humane? To take someone's life for taking a life or to put them in a cell for 52 years. That's absolutely inhumane. See, we don't even do that with tigers anymore. We don't even do that with lions. Long imprisonment is a living death. A man is separated from his wife and family, often causing them prolonged unmerited hardship. He is put in a single-sex institution where a normal sex life is impossible. His companions are criminals. He is shut up to his own bad conscience, but in conditions ill-designed to affect repentance and reformation and with slender hopes of satisfactory rehabilitation after release. If, and it's impossible, some sort of calculus could be devised to assess the amount of suffering caused to offenders and their families by our long, drawn-out, physically painless punishments and compare them with short, sharp pains of the older punishments, I find it hard to believe that the new would prove the lighter. It is all very well to talk in theory about the enlightenment and humanity of modern penal codes, but in practice the prisons of the 20th century have probably witnessed torments as vile as those inflicted at any age and inflicted on a wider scale than ever before in history. 
Are we really in a position to say that we could have devised for the Israelite people unpleasantnesses more just, humane, and practical than those prescribed in the Old Testament law? I, for one, doubt it. You see, in our society, the laws which seem to be so harsh in, act, in, in actuality are, are, are merciful. Now, there are some laws that are a little bit difficult. Um, turn with me to Deuteronomy 21. Because Deuteronomy 21 talks about the death penalty, not for murder, but Deuteronomy 21 talks about the death penalty for uh, juvenile delinquency. Uh, some find this a little harsh. Because it is harsh. Uh, it is severe. Uh, some would say this is cruel and unusual punishment. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst. And now catch this. And all Israel will hear of it in fear. Um, did this happen on a daily basis in Israel? I don't think so. In fact, I don't know of a recorded instance in the Old Testament when we read about this. This is the kind of thing that only needs to happen about once in a generation. Can I show you something interesting over in 1 Timothy chapter 5? In 1 Timothy 5, I think it's verse 19. And I'm getting close. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of how many witnesses? Two or three. There it is again. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest will be fearful, what? Of sinning. The same principle is here that is in the Old Testament when it comes to a kid that's out of control. See, the principle is there is no fear of sin. When I was talking with his wife last night, her husband was a leader in the church, and uh, they've gone to him and they've talked to him, but the question is, are they going to follow through with church discipline? Because he's written a letter to people, and she sent me a copy of the letter, and of course, this guy is basically a letter. He says the same thing that every guy that gets into adultery says. First thing he says is, he talks about the love of God, and God loves everybody all the time for anything. He never mentioned the holiness of God. He talked about the love of God. And the second thing he said is, don't judge me. And the same thing homosexuals. Nobody, see, the greatest sin in our culture is to judge somebody. Yet that day I was reading in Hebrews that God judges adulterers. God judges sexual sin. But see, this guy doesn't want to be judged. Well, the Bible says if you've got someone who continues in sin, you're supposed to follow church discipline. One of the reasons of following church discipline, and, and this doesn't happen all the time. I've seen this happen a handful of times, where you go through a process with somebody, you follow Matthew 18, 
and it takes a long period of time. But finally, when that per person, you've exhausted every avenue, and they absolutely refuse, and they've been a public figure, when they are disciplined publicly from the platform, you know what happens? There's a fear of sin in the congregation. But see, nobody wants to do that anymore. And that's why there's no fear of sin. See, we look at the Old Testament situation, and they weren't stoning children all the time. But, and, and you say, why in the world would something like that happen? Because, because God was working in such a way that, that God had to keep this nation pure because it was this nation through whom the Messiah was going to come, and if they became like all the other nations, he'd have to destroy them. Listen again to what Winham says. He says, this may at first sight seem sheer heartless cruelty, but, but the stress is strictly upon incorrigibility. Incorrigibility in the face of, of repeated warnings of the death penalty. In, in our modern day, we have psychopathic children for whom every modern medicine has no satisfactory treatment. We got nine-year-old kids that are killing five-year-old kids. And see, in our court system, nobody can figure out what to do. Well, do we try them as an adult? Or do we, because, see, and, and so what happens, this kid who is killed and will kill again is going to be released by the time they reach a certain point. And we know it's going to happen, but we are absolutely befuddled uh, in our attempt to be gracious and kind and loving. Um, in such desperate cases as are here envisaged, it is not likely to make up for the, lad, for the poor lad's happiness or for the happiness of those about him that he should continue to live and perhaps to propagate his own kind. The wisdom of the ages is inclined to say, whom the gods love, die young. Certainly in a case such as this, if, if death were to come naturally, we should all regard it as a merciful release. It is strange and surely hardly logical to regard it as inhumane when merciful release comes through the workings of a social and moral code. We're pretty sloppy in our thinking to indict what the Old Testament had to say. Let me do one more, okay? Because this comes up all the time, and you're going to hear this all the time. I mean, you do hear it. And that is the whole issue of homosexuality and the penalty for homosexuality in the Old Testament. Um, we need to say something. First of all, we need to say that it is to be understood that a defense of the morality of the Old Testament law does not necessarily imply that these laws should be reimposed today. These were laws for Israel, which was a theocracy. Um, we are to preach the gospel, not Old Testament law. There's a certain branch of theology that is teaching that Old Testament law ought to be normative for our government in our time and our day. Um, so what about homosexuality? Because God speaks of homosexuality that in the Old Testament, in Israel, it was deserving of death. Uh, let me take a minute and read this to you, okay? Because this is going to come up. There can be no doubt that those with homosexual tendencies have suffered grievously down the centuries through the sins and misunderstandings of others. Knowledge of the subject is growing, but it is still imperfectly understood, and it would be particularly foolish to draw hasty conclusions about the present-day situation from the Old Testament laws. We shall not, therefore, presume to try to apply the Old Testament law to our modern problems, but simply to look at the situation in ancient Israel. Two points should be made. 
First, it is necessary to see the severity of this law in relation to that of other laws. Although homosexual practices were regarded as a gross and heinous contravention of the created order, it is important to note that homosexual sins were not treated as being more heinous than heterosexual sins. That's important, and that's true. Second, it's necessary to see the severity of this law in the context of the solidarity principle. We have already laid a good deal of stress on this principle in biblical thought and seen how the sins and blessings of one generation affect subsequent generations. This factor seems to play an important part in at least some cases of homosexual orientation. There is often an arrested or distorted psychosexual development, which is the result of an abnormal relationship with either or both parents. Dominative, dominating and overprotective mothers or weaker absent fathers are often found in the families of homosexuals. The resulting distaste for the other sex may prevent a free and natural heterosexual love from developing, thus there may rise a temptation to seek sexual expression homosexually. Um, the deficiencies of parents may of course be largely the result, now catch this, of the deficiencies of grandparents and theirs of great-grandparents. We are all caught up in a web which goes back many generations. Our responsibilities are corporate, and a parent may inherit a situation over which he has little or no control or for which he carries little direct blame. Yet the effective disregard of the law of God by many individuals over an expended period of time will in the end bring dire social consequences. Think of the social consequences that are happening in our nation. Because of the demand, not only for the acceptance of homosexuality, they don't want acceptance, they want approval. And they want the approval of everybody. Uh, it is important to notice that this particular grim end product is the long-term result of transgressing the divine order of creation. Old Testament law, determined to preserve a helpful expected pattern of behavior, provided that these practices should be nipped in the bud. Judged by the amount of suffering endured by many homosexuals, it could be argued that the occasional, the occasional execution of a compulsive homosexual in the Old Testament, however tragic it might be, would have been merciful even at times to the man concerned. When it is seen in the context of the mission of the chosen people to the human race, it would have been an irreparable disaster if Israel had been allowed to become so corrupted that it had to be destroyed before the Messiah had come. Other corrupt nations could be and were swept away. Israel had to be preserved even if it meant laws of great severity. If Israel was destroyed, the Messiah wouldn't have come through Israel. And if Messiah hadn't come through Israel, no one would be saved from their sin. That's why God was severe in the Old Testament. God's a God of justice. Um, we're a culture of tolerance. God is a, God is a God of discipline. We are a culture that is lax. But can we also say this? God is a God not only of justice, but God is a God of mercy. He's a God of mercy. Um, we forget just how sinful we are. We often assign to people the greatest motives imaginable. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a tragic event that happened in a small town late one night. Um, a large house went up 
in flames. And by the time the local fire wagon got there, it, it was almost completely engulfed, and people are standing around just watching this. And then they heard the cries of a small child coming from the upstairs. And people's hearts were just, were just broken. They were just, but there was no way anyone could get, there was just, and suddenly a man went dashing into that burning building. People could not believe it. It was suicide. And, and they watched, and they waited, and they watched, and they waited, and they knew it was just a matter of seconds before those walls began to collapse. And, and the agony of anticipation, and there was no way anyone could survive. And then he came out through the front door, bent over, holding a bundle in his arms. And as he staggered away from the house and, and, and fell and was unconscious, they went to open the bundle, to open the blanket and take out the baby. But it wasn't a baby. It was a small safe deposit box that contained some gold coins and some deeds for some property. And isn't it interesting the motives that everyone was ascribing to that man when he went into the house? But see, the fact of the matter is, uh, we didn't know, they didn't know his heart. God is holy. At times, God is severe, but God is holy. God is a just God. But guys, the good news, here's the good news. When sin came into the world, every sin was a capital crime. When sin came in, death entered in. Because of the mercy, who has ever heard of a God who would send his son to die for those who could not save themselves? Nothing like that's ever been heard in the history of the world. That's what you call mercy. That's what you call grace. That's what you call astonishing. That's what you call amazing grace. Is he a God of justice? Yes. Is there any way we can repay our debt? No. So his own son came to pay for your sin and mine by his life, which was flawless and spotless and sinless. Is he a God of justice? Absolutely. Is he a God of mercy? Absolutely. And that mercy is offered to everyone who will reach out and receive it. He's a good God. He can be trusted. He's never done anything wrong. He cannot be held in contempt because of his character. Let's bow and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Thank you for your character. We struggle at times with some of the things we read in the Old Testament. We have trouble sometimes understanding it. It seems so harsh and it seems so severe. But, Lord, you were trying to save a nation so that you could save the world. We have become so soft and we have become so liberated and we've become so enlightened. We think, Lord, that we're so educated, but all we have done is just read a lot of books, and quite frankly, most of those books contain a lot of nonsense.
we need to become tutored in your word and in your truth and in your holiness. Now, Lord, we get frustrated at times because we see a lack of justice. I would pray for each one of us that we would practice justice and mercy in our own lives and in our own families. Help us to tell the truth. If we're called to give an account on a witness stand, may we tell the truth. May we not hedge it. In our personal dealings, may we be above reproach. May we honor the truth and may we honor what is right by how we live our lives. May we be above reproach in our financial dealings. May we be of a mindset that we would rather be taken advantage of than take advantage. Lord, in a day where justice is so rare, in a day where your law is ignored, what is needed is that the standard would again be raised. We pray that uh, uh, you would be honored in our lives and in our homes and in our families and you'd be honored in our church. That Christ would be lifted up. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we have freedom because so many have died for freedom. We would pray for our president because he's under unbelievable pressure. Um, we, Lord, we, we pray that you give him great wisdom. We pray that you'll give him biblical counsel. That, Lord, I, I would pray for him that he would not seek a second term, but that he would seek you. And when I say that, I don't mean that he wouldn't run, but I would pray that as he makes decisions, he would not make them in light of what people are going to think or how this is going to affect people's votes, but that he would do what would honor you and honor your justice and honor your word. We pray that for him. We pray it for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.